Hello, and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're delighted to bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. If you're enjoying our podcast and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please consider a donation. You can find details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. My guest today is the author and blogger Amal Khandur. Based in Beirut, she is the author of About This Man Called Ali and the just-released This Arab Life, published by Bold Story Press. This Arab Life is both a personal memoir and an exploration. One reviewer called it an excavation into the political and social world of Lebanon, Jordan, and the wider Arab world. I recommend it highly. Amal, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Bill. Thank you for having me. The, uh, the subtitle to your book is A Generation's Journey into Silence. For me as a reader, it was full of insight and beautifully evocative, but also to a stark and, and brutally honest assessment. So I wonder, how hard was it for you to write this Arab life? Look, writing it was hard, uh, but the conversation uh, uh, between me and myself and the... Um, the self-questioning, uh, if you like, was was not really. I mean, these are these were conversations that I was having with myself for um, for uh, for a very long time, indeed, with the the uh, my circle of life. You know, these were issues and problems and challenges that were already quite uh, apparent to us. The uh, the writing uh, had come really at the end of this process, uh, a process that had started uh, long before. Uh, and the main challenge uh, for me was to crystallize this, the, the intimate history of the generation of the 80s, which was my generation. And, and uh, the even bigger challenge was to be very careful not to censor myself. But I think what I did finally, uh, Bill, is just sit down and, and when I started writing, I decided that you're going to be writing for yourself. And then at the end of it, you're going to read the book and you're going to decide, or the manuscript rather, and you're going to decide whether you're going to to go with it or not. And uh, at the end, I, uh, I decided that I'm going to go with it. And that's, that's, um, that's what happened. Your family, and especially your father, Ali Abu Fadi, figures large in the book. He fled Lebanon in 1962 with a death sentence hanging over him. Your mother, along with your brother and sister and your aunt, escaped to Amman. You were just a few months old. And your father joined you there. He went on to establish Jordan's national airline. His is quite a story in its own right. You wrote, My father put his ideological zeal to bed and became a man of the establishment. Why did he take that decision and what do you think it cost him? He took it on the pain of death. He was a member, a high-ranking member of the SSMP, the Syrian Social National Party that uh, carried out a coup d'etat on the eve of... Uh, 1962, which of course failed miserably. He was one of the members uh, of the higher council who were opposed to this coup, and it happened when he was in fact on a business trip in in Paris. Uh, he didn't go to Jordan immediately. He went to Africa and then Iran and Kuwait and finally to Jordan because Jordan had opened its doors to the fleeing or persecuted members of the SSMP, and he. Uh, went with the delegation to thank King Hussein at that time for uh, for uh, the Jordan's hospitality, if you like, uh, to the to the party members. 
And that's when the king asked him to stay and establish the national airline. Uh, so in that sense, there was no, I mean, it, it changed the very trajectory of the family, uh, if you like. Uh, but one kind of sacrifice perhaps permitted uh, an extraordinary uh, opportunity for my father. He was an aeronautical engineer, very passionate about uh, aviation. He had uh, already started uh, a career uh, in that in Lebanon. Uh, and I think his departure for Jordan really opened uh, extraordinary uh, doors for him. He forged a close friendship with the king. And uh, it is true that he put his revolutionary zeal uh, to the side, but the friendship the fact that he became an advisor to him uh, allowed for a pretty active engagement uh, in politics. Discreet, uh, it is true, but, but active nonetheless. So, uh, I mean, it changed his entire life. Uh, but I don't think in the end he looked upon it as any kind of uh, sacrifice. I think it was very sad. It was tragic what happened in Lebanon. It was tragic that, uh, uh, you know, he ended up having to find a home elsewhere. Uh, but I think uh, uh, it also came with extraordinary rewards uh, in its own way. So in the end, I think it balanced out for him. And uh, there was a letter that your father wrote um, in 1967, I think after the uh, Six-Day War with Israel, a letter that your sister came across. Uh, can you speak about uh, that letter? Well, the letter was written to my brother in 1967. In fact, on June 9th, he, my father was on a flight uh, to the Ivory Coast in 1967. Uh, he had really uh, experienced a, a serious emotional turmoil in the 1967 war and decided that he doesn't want, doesn't want to have anything to do with the Arab world. And he went out to Africa and other places to see if uh, he might set up uh, a new life uh, over there. He wrote this letter to my brother with this emotional and uh, uh, a psychological context, if you like. And I think it was very important for him. Uh, he had a sense of what the Arab world was about to, uh, to experience. I, I think it was very important for him to... Uh, remind himself and perhaps uh, remind his son as to the kind of responsibility that that he uh, wanted Fadi to shoulder, uh, the kind of commitment uh, to community and its uh, well-being, a commitment to the Arab world. So I think, uh, you know, it's a very interesting letter because in a way, uh, it came at a time when he was trying to see if he can really leave the Arab world, but at the same time, it speaks to an extraordinary commitment to it. And in the final analysis, he stayed. I mean, my mother was pregnant. Uh, his career was doing very well. Uh, the king had uh, called him and uh, asked him to return. By the way, the death sentence was still hanging over his head. He was pardoned in 1968. So I think in the final analysis, he decided that it's probably better to stay than to leave. And I think, I, I think the letter itself is an extremely... Um, a very honest reflection of his psychological and emotional uh, state at that at that time. And uh, just before that that war in '67 began, you, your mother, and your siblings uh, went back to Lebanon because your father sensed that the war was going to happen and that Lebanon was actually a safer place to be. 
Ben Jordan. He had a, a keen sense that that war was coming. So he uh, uh, he told my mother to take us to Lebanon because Lebanon, had, you know, in 1967 had pretty much excused itself, recused itself uh, from the from the war, if you like. So it was uh, it was a sanctuary of a sort. And that's when we went to school there for a year uh, in 1967 and returned in 1968 to Jordan. And you write about the life in which you grew up in Amman, a, a privileged life. You write about that with a degree of regret and also looking back, perhaps a, a sense of guilt. I'm thinking of this sentence. I never let go of any passion, but I did sacrifice politics, a passion, for the lightness of being. Uh, yes, regret. You're absolutely right. Regret. Look, you you know, in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings of 2011, you couldn't possibly belong to my generation. Indeed, the generation that came after me in the 90s, or, you know, the came of political age in the 90s. Even the generation that came before us and not, you ask yourself some very hard questions about your place and your role uh, in the past 40 years and what transpired that much of which explains the the uprisings and and the catastrophes that uh, that uh, that ensued uh so regret yes you had to ask yourself some very hard questions i, I wouldn't say a sense of guilt i th- i think a, a better description is a sense of responsibility that's how i i thought of it and that's how i addressed it uh, really there was no reckoning no allocation of blame no uh, finger pointing is just an effort to really uh, achieve clarity on what transpired over the past 40 years and where my place and the place of my generation or my own specific class was uh, was in it. So a sense of responsibility more than a sense of guilt. But you feel that that was a sense of responsibility that in your younger years you kind of walked away from? Yes. <laughs> Yes, for many reasons. And I think the, the book itself is, is an ode to that, if you like. Uh, I mean, it's, an, it's a, a, a very, um, if you like, honest, raw exploration of the silence. And I, I was not satisfied with the, um, with the usual tropes, if you like, uh, you know, neoliberalism and despotism and uh, living in very repressive regimes. I wanted a deeper, uh, more honest exploration of this. And I think uh, that's really why I decided to, to write this Arab life. I wanted a much more honest introspection. So, uh, yes, there was an abdication of responsibility. Of course. Of course there was. Voluntary and involuntary. Uh, and I think, you know, at the heart of it, uh, Bill, is, is a question that is, that has been fundamental to my generation and fundamental to the generations that came after me. Sacrifice. I mean, we, we know uh, that radical systemic change does not come without sacrifice. Uh, and I think uh, that goes to the heart of the matter of my generation, generations that followed me is were we willing really to sacrifice for this kind of systemic radical change? Did we have enough belief in us, enough conviction in us that this kind of sacrifice will deliver, um, will deliver the kind of radical change that the, that the region uh, very much needed? And I think in many ways the answer was no. Mm. 
Well, you've mentioned neoliberalism. Uh, the politics of Lebanon are the politics of greed and elites aided and abetted, you argue, by the IMF and the ideology of neoliberalism. How destructive has that been to the people of Lebanon? Very destructive. Very destructive. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the IMF didn't really play a role in the uh, in post-war Lebanon. It's, it's, it began to have a more of a presence over the past few years, but in the early years and the post-war years, Hariri, Rafiq Hariri would become prime minister and pretty much the dominant uh, force in the political economy of Lebanon never really sought out the IMF per se for for help because that would have... Uh, that would have uh, indicated uh, or signaled that, that in point of fact, he was, or the, the country was in trouble. I think he opted for donor conferences like Paris 1 and Paris 2 and other international conferences to seek, um, you know, more and more loans in the service of uh, the, the effort to um, presumably rebuild uh, Lebanon. Um, but the new liberalism itself, which was very much embraced by Hariri and the sectarian uh, economic uh, elite of the country, uh, I think was very clear. And I, I, they wouldn't dispute it themselves. I mean, this is the kind of economic program that very much uh, was in step with their own uh, vision and their own interests. So they wouldn't even uh, dispute that. As to the, what, it, uh, what it delivered for Lebanon, I think is very clear. Uh, I mean, over the past uh, three years, we have been uh, witness to uh, the consequences of the political economic regime that uh, Hariri and this this um, sectarian economic class had uh, set up in the very early in the post-war years. I mean, I you know, it's it's uh, you it's there for you to see, to watch, to experience, to live. It's very much there. Wholesale collapse. Political, economic, financial, what the World Bank has described, the worst economic meltdown in the, in the uh, modern history of humanity, since the 19th century at least. And that, that, that policy of really dangling the money but enforcing programs of austerity and, and, and economic strategies that one size does not fit all, does it? Well, that and, and you know, the, I mean, you know, the, the, the country, the state, the Lebanese state emerged uh, from the war completely uh, devastated. And I think what happened in the post-war years is the peace continued what the war had not finished, if you like. Uh, so there was literally a very deliberate dismantlement of the state, its uh, authority, its jurisdiction, its capabilities, its influence, its traditional role, its constitutional role. I mean, there was a deficit. And I, you know, I, I want to be clear here. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, uh, give the, the suggestion that the, all the blame is with Hariri. I, I think this is the work, the handiwork of, uh, the entire ruling class. Uh, but clearly, the man played an extraordinarily significant role in the post-war years. He's the main architect of this regime. Uh, he's the one who put it in place. He's the one who entrenched it. He's the one who presided over it. And therefore, uh, you know, you cannot ignore the kind of role that Hariri played in the devastation that, that, uh, that followed. 
uh, but it's uh, is the blame entirely his? Uh, of course not. Rafiq Hariri, he became prime minister in 1992, shortly after the end of uh, 15 years of civil war, um, assassinated, of course, in 2005. But his image as a progress builder dovetail very neatly with Western expectations and, and as you mentioned, donors. And I want to ask you about this huge project that he had, uh, Solidaire. That was the rebuilding of the Balad al-Wasata, the center of Beirut, which had been destroyed by the war. Talk a little bit about Solidaire, what it says about Lebanon, but also you lived there and, and how it how it affected you, what he had done with this this huge project. Right. Okay, so very briefly, Solidaire is a, a real estate holding company that was incorporated as a joint stock company in 1994. Its main shareholder was uh, none other than Rafiq Hariri, who had become prime minister in 1992. Uh, its main charge was to uh, rebuild the city center of Beirut, uh, an area that uh, historically played uh, a very significant role in the country. I mean, it was a commercial banking and trading hub. It was a, a tourist uh, attraction, a showcase of Beirut's archaeological history, if you like, going back to Byzantine um, times, uh, a place where Lebanon's different sects and classes and communities kind of lived and worked and, uh, and mixed. I think in 1975, on the eve of the war, there was um, around... 100,000 uh, Beirutis who had, in fact, uh, worked and lived um, in, in this area. So Solidaire essentially took possession of 150 hectares of land and 46 hectares of reclaimed land on the seafront. And that, of course, included all the private property in the uh, designated parameters uh, borders of Solidaire. This effective, it's important to point out that this effectively meant that 80% of the historical municipal area of Beirut was owned by a wholly private company. So the state had really effectively forfeited any role whatsoever in the rebuilding of the single most uh, strategic piece of, uh, of real estate. And I think uh, very early on, and by its, you know, uh, the, the way it was created, the sweeping powers it enjoyed by law, and the vision it had of uh, the rebuilt center, Solidaire, from the start was an extremely uh, controversial project. I mean, it was the first time that the government, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know of any instance in, in, in history, certainly in the Middle East, I don't know about the world, but I suspect as well, where the, uh, the state grants rights of eminent domain to a private company. Uh, so the state came in, transferred private, the ownership of private property from one to another. Uh, and Solidaire itself determined the value of the land, determined the value of the property, and presided over the complaints of the uh, private property owners who themselves had absolutely no recourse to the Lebanese courts. So uh, its design as well uh, signaled that, uh, you know, it had absolutely no interest whatsoever in reprising the historical role of the city center, its urban, traditional urban texture, and, uh, you know, the, the way uh, it was a gathering place for the different communities and different classes, uh, the souks, the old structures, uh, the presence of small and medium-sized um, 
you know, outfits and companies and so on and so forth. And extremely important uh, as well is that it completely erased the crucial line between public and private interest. So, you know, Hariri and his supporters, of course, had their arguments that the weakness of the state and the nature of private ownership in the central district demanded an approach like uh, like Solidaire's, the, the rental laws, uh, the fragmentation of ownership were serious disincentives to investment. And of course, the dearth of international aid on a scale that the uh, rebuilding uh, effort would have required and the the impoverishment, economic impoverishment of the state, you know, called for an approach like Solidaire's as well. So uh, in that sense, Solidaire appealed if you like, to the strength of Hariri as a contractor, a billionaire, a man who had the support, of course, of Syria and Saudi Arabia, the two main patrons of 1989, the 1989 Taif Accords and of post-war Lebanon, up to 2005 at least. And of course, a man with very strong connections uh, to the West. So it, in that same way, it appealed to the weakness of a state that was ravaged by war and a, um, a society no less traumatized by it. So to my mind, uh, I think Solidaire kind of very quickly set the tone of the post-war era in, uh, in Lebanon. The total capture of the state, again, by a sectarian economic ruling class uh, whose very business uh, would be to strengthen and expand their influence and their reach at the expense of an increasingly enfeebled state. It came to symbolize, if you like, the post-war uh, era uh, of uh, of Lebanon, and therefore it continues till this very day to be an extremely controversial project, uh, the much prized achievement of Hariri, and a symbol of um, much of what went wrong in Lebanon in the aftermath of the war, if you like. I want to ask you now about Hezbollah, and uh, this uh, these sentences caught me. I cannot allow Hariri to hog all the attention. Hezbollah also ought to take a bow, because in Lebanese juxtapositions, it doesn't get any better than Hariri and Hezbollah. Now, I'm fascinated by that juxtaposition, so please, can you say more? Sure. I mean, it is a fascinating juxtaposition, isn't it? Uh, I mean, the, the Hariri and Hezbollah pretty much are the two dominant political players of post-war Lebanon. Uh, I mean, the, the first 15 years under Syrian patronage, of course, and the second 15 years without it, pretty much. The two are often looked upon as antagonists, but the reality uh, is much more nuanced than this, uh, as usual. Uh, and what they shared uh, really is the, the size and sway uh, uh, that they enjoyed, the one through money, uh, of course, and the other through arms really two large players, two very serious players in a very small stage. They both appeared on the scene in the 1980s, by the way, and when the war ended, both occupied their respective positions, again, under the uh, guidance of Syria. Uh, Hariri was uh, proceeded to forge the political economy of Lebanon, while Hezbollah really concerned itself with resistance against Israel, which finally ended its occupation of uh, the South in 2000. And when Hariri died in 2005, when the Syrians departed, you saw Hezbollah very quickly become 
the uh, uh, singularly dominant political player in the country, and frankly, the mainstay uh, of the system that Hariri had set in place. And I think that's the biggest irony in this uh, juxtaposition. And what they shared uh, both, what, what they shared was a, was a kind of satisfaction with and an interest in the weakness of the state. And as, if you like, different models of non-state actors, uh, both were keen to operate uh, within and outside the state. They, they, they competed with the state and at the same time colonized key institutions in it. So I think it's a very interesting model of the non-state actor, if you like. And I think very little attention is paid to that, uh, frankly, in the scholarship. So in this sense, uh, you know, I've always found the argument that Hezbollah represents the status quo ante in Lebanon a bit laughable, uh, you know, and essentially wrong. And, you know, you hear today, uh, here and now, you, you, uh, you know, you have Hezbollah as the single most powerful political actor doing its best to keep afloat a defunct experiment. So that's, that's essentially Hariri and Hezbollah. Of course, he was a self-made Saudi uh, billionaire, very much uh, the creation of Saudi Arabia. And Hezbollah, had a, a very mass uh, resistance, grassroots uh, movement that was uh, established uh, with the help and active involvement of, of Iran and uh, active support of it uh, thereafter. So uh, uh, I think, you know, you can't possibly look at post-war Lebanon without, uh, without looking at this juxtaposition and how it, it dominated the scene in the uh, uh, post-1990. Beirut today and, and the current situation of Lebanon, you, you've touched on it a little bit already, but, you know, more than two years on from the harbor blast, still no accountability. The parliament paralyzed uh, an alleged criminal running the central bank. Uh, you write, for us Lebanese as individuals, the state is at once non-existent and predatory. Can anything be done, Amal, to change that bleak picture? Well, things can be done, but they're not going to be. Uh, I mean, uh, and I think the description that you've just given is a very clear indication of of that. I mean, it's like it's kind of a question that answers itself. We've had in 2019, literally, again, I hate to keep repeating myself, but wholesale collapse. I mean, uh, this is literally the end of the Lebanese experiment, and we have been uh, again. Uh, over the past three years, witness to a uh, an elite, a sectarian, again, political and economic elite, uh, ruling elite, who have uh, shown absolutely no interest whatsoever in addressing the fundamental problems of this uh, of this country. the The tragedy here, of course, Bill, is that this is really a small place. It's a small place, and uh, God knows uh, enough studies have been done as to essentially what might uh, be done to help this country put itself together again in a viable way. But the last three years, I think, are ample proof that the, uh, the powers that be, the masters of this, of, this, uh, of this Lebanon, are simply not interested at all, and I don't think they will do anything about it. So the, the short of it is, uh, can something be done? Yes, will it be done? Absolutely not. Well, finally, Amal, to finish, uh, 
in the last paragraph of this Arab life, you write, somewhere in all of this, surely there must be fragments of answers. So looking for answers, let me ask you an apparently simple, but I suspect fiendishly complex question. Is the Arab Spring dead? Um, the, the Arab Spring, look, you know, one thing, one, one fact eludes many people who have declared the failure of the Arab Spring is that the, 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 the uprisings themselves in this first round uh, have failed, but so have the regimes. This is, and that's why we continue to experience periodic, periodic eruptions We've seen in 2011, Egypt and Tunisia and Libya and Yemen and Syria uh, erupt. Uh, we've seen again in 2018, Algeria and uh, Sudan and Iraq erupt. In 2019, Lebanon uh, erupt. So the, 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 the social contract that really would underwrite any kind of political stability and regime legitimacy in these countries uh, simply is not there. Uh, so I, I think what we have here are police states that are extraordinary, extraordinarily capable of repressing revolts, but extremely incapable, absolutely incapable of delivering for the people. And I don't think coercion and fear are enough to uh, guarantee long-term political stability uh, in, in the region. So I think we are really in a, a period of periodic eruptions, chronic uh, instability. And I, of course, don't dare anticipate when the next eruption is going to happen and what it would look like. But the, the tr again, the, the conundrum here is a are police states that are very difficult to dislodge and uh, societies that are in constant upheaval. And that's, in the short to medium term, that's, that's, uh, that's what I see. So the spring might be over, but the, but the, the havoc, uh, I don't think, is. Well, Amal, and I think your book, This Arab Life, as as honest and excoriatingly honest, I would say, as it is, I think it, it holds within it that essence of, of resilience, but also of hope that uh, that the next generation will move things forward. And, and as you say, uh, repression can only go so far. And the disconnect between uh, these authoritarian leaders and the people grows ever, ever larger. Look, I... I'm I'm really quite sensitive to to the new generation's need uh, for this kind of hope, and I do think that this this region is really full of very uh, small stories, individual stories of of success and hope, and I and I do think that this region is really quite open to a to some kind of a rewrite. I can't really tell you. I mean, I'm I'm I have enough modesty and humility in me not to dare predict. Uh, but I think there's much space uh, for uh, an imaginative leap, if you like. I don't think my generation is capable of it. I do think that we have a role, and I do think that we have enough influence to play uh, some kind of a role, but I don't think we are really going to be the initiators or the leaders in this. I think this is entirely now the, uh, if you like, the challenge for, for the new generations. So I'm not entirely pessimistic. The book is not a call to action per se. 
it's a it has a different uh, mission in mind if you like uh, but i think i think there's much that the new generation can can actually do uh, in this next period and we just need to to sit back and and see what they have in mind well i thank you amal uh, for your time and, and and for your book it's it's a marvelous marvelous read and i i thoroughly enjoyed it and i will urge all our listeners to to go out and get this arab life thank you so much thank you thank you so much bill my pleasure. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Amal Handur. Her book, This Arab Life, published by Bold Story Press, is just out. And as I've already said, I cannot recommend it too highly. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, Check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. We're happy to bring you the podcasts with no advertising and no sponsors. If you're enjoying our podcasts and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, do consider a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter, and how to get a free trial. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.